The intelligence is artificial, the dangers are real, and some of them are already with us. In Brazil, one year after the murder of a journalist and an activist, their work goes on, done by others. And Auschwitz, where the battle is over memory and the preservation of the history of the Holocaust. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism. You've seen the apocalyptic headlines. Are machines out to take our jobs? Are they developing the ability to wipe out humanity? About two weeks ago, hundreds of tech insiders and academics warned governments that artificial intelligence, or AI, if left unchecked, could soon develop the ability and the will to destroy us all. Those sounding the alarm include some of the industry's biggest players, AI developers like the Microsoft-backed OpenAI and Google's DeepMind, companies that continue to pour billions of big tech dollars into this technology. There is a lot of skepticism around this story, and AI illiteracy is a big part of the problem. That includes journalists reporting on the story who do not fully understand the technology they're covering. The scary part? Neither do some of the people creating it. Tonight, a stark warning that artificial intelligence could lead to the extinction of humanity. Starting with a question that confounds so many people who lack expertise in artificial intelligence. That is to say, almost all of us. How did the discussion about AI go so quickly from the excited to the apocalyptic? From the apparently limitless possibilities to the fear of our eventual destruction at the hands of a technology that is of our own making. There are people who think that catastrophic risks are certainly something uh, very conceivable, and I'm among those. People should be aware of the potential risks associated with AI and robotics. There could be a range of really bad outcomes, starting with destabilizing democracies, but all, all going all the way to the kind of effects you might expect from, um, you know, large-scale nuclear war. Personally, I think we don't know enough to be very reassured and that we should start working to avoid uh, even the low probability event of something catastrophic. With the systems we have right now, the warnings of human extinction, perhaps in the relative near future, uh, really are quite exaggerated. A lot of uh, pieces to this argument are quite uh, questionable and are highly speculative. If you look at the mechanism by which this artificial general intelligence could actually kill every single person on uh, the planet, most of them are really quite, you know, quite overblown at the moment. The alarmism is part of a classic uh, technology hype cycle. You get a new technology and some people have got an interest in boosting it, in telling us that it's going to change the world in wonderful ways. And other people are saying, hang on a second, where is this going, where might it end up? The danger of that kind of extreme debate is that it misses out the here and now. It misses out the really practical things that are happening. 
Many AI experts will echo that view, that the doomsday scenarios do not merit the journalistic attention they are attracting and should be relegated to the fringes of news coverage. Because, they say, those scenarios and existential fears are based on a version of AI that does not yet exist, known as AGI, artificial general intelligence, that if developed, would eventually be capable of thinking, reasoning, and acting on its own without the need for human input. Still, that possibility is enough to produce alarmist coverage, news angles that get the clicks, and distract audiences from the real harm AI is already causing through technologically driven bias, discrimination, and misinformation. When human beings choose the data that artificial intelligence uses, unconscious biases can slip in to the machine learning models, biases that are then automated and perpetuated. U.S. government studies have already found that AI-driven facial recognition tools often misidentify people of color, leading to wrongful arrests. And that's just one example. My concern about the focus on doomsday prophesying is that it catalyzes energy and resources toward these far-off scenarios where people are getting harmed by these systems in the present day. They're affecting people's access to whether they're able to get a mortgage, whether they're getting adequate health care, whether they're called in for that job and whether they're well paid. And these are the kinds of concerns that we need to be foregrounding in the conversation around AI. There are several risks that people have been talking about. I'm very concerned about uh, how these tools could really scale up the level of disinformation that we already suffer from and all the image generation tools, uh, voice generation tools. If we're not careful to constrain them and, and, and avoid systems that have autonomy and can decide for themselves. One practical concern about AI in newsrooms that gets plenty of coverage out of self-interest has to do with the implications for reporters, their jobs. Artificial intelligence is not entirely new to journalism. Automation tools have been churning out news copy for years, particularly in financial reporting. They can track the movements of the markets and pour through earnings reports quickly and efficiently. The advent of new generative AI tools like ChatGPT, their ability to create original text and images, will intensify the impact that AI is having on the news business. But many journalists are no better informed about AI, its flaws and limitations, than the audiences they report to. They need to fear the technology less and get to know it better, what it's good at and where it falls short. The good media organizations are using it to support their journalists, to make them more effective and more efficient and more connected to their public freeing them up to do the kind of human journalism that we need so badly. But it will be just as easy to replace journalists, to create uh, easily uh, automated, uh, banal journalism that you can't necessarily trust. And some people are going to do that for profit and to maximise their page views. Other people are going to do it to try and add value. And we know it makes mistakes. These systems are not trained on live data. They're not um, designed in ways that are responsive to evolving societal conditions. 
They're also not factual in their underlying capacities. What they do is they can effectively mimic the patterns of human speech. They can't tell you anything about the underlying meaning in the words that appear on the page. This is really key to keep in our minds. Journalists provide a really critical resource to society, and that resource cannot be replaced by an, a generative AI system. This letter, just one sentence long, recently made headlines about humanity's imminent AI-driven demise. It came out late last month and was signed by some of the industry's biggest players, including Google DeepMind's Demis Hassabis and OpenAI's Sam Altman. The letter said that regulation should be a global priority to curb the harm their AI products can possibly cause. Right on stage, Sam Altman. Analysts have pointed out, however, that those companies are still pouring money into AI development, that their prophecies of doom could be a ploy to get billionaire tech bros a seat at the table where the rules and regulations on the future of AI will eventually be written. You could see this with like Sam Altman going to Washington DC and he gets to meet with all these senators and with a bunch of uh, CEOs or you know, high level uh, individuals in the tech world. Um, about the potential risks, and there was Joe Biden walked in and said something like, you know, I I'm, I'm understand the riskiness of these technologies and I'm uh, really trusting you guys to figure out how to, to solve it. The warnings about human extinction do help these companies to further concentrate power. Essentially what they're saying is that the technologies that we are building now pose a threat to all of humanity. And the only way that we can properly mitigate these risks is to rely on the companies themselves. These are not companies that have a demonstrated track record of addressing public concerns about the broad impact of their systems. So I think it's really important that we be paying close attention to the way that market incentives are, you know, encouraging these companies to deploy systems into wide public use before they're ready and with very little internal scrutiny, let alone uh, adequate testing from, the, um, from regulators. The weak point here is the human. I'm pretty sure that we could build safe and very useful AI systems. But if, even if we knew the recipe for doing this, that means we could easily turn that knowledge into how to build a rogue AI that could be dangerous for humanity. It's not a, just a technical problem, it's also a social problem, a political problem, even an economic problem. And we have to think about uh, what are the motivations for people who might do that and how do we reorganize society to minimize those risks. To Brazil now, where justice delayed may not prove to be justice denied in the case of a double murder deep in the Amazon. Flo Phillips is here with the details. It's been exactly one year since British journalist Dom Phillips and Brazilian indigenous activist Bruno Pereira were murdered while reporting on the illegal exploitation of the Amazon rainforest and its indigenous communities. Tributes marking the anniversary were held in cities across Brazil, just as police announced formal charges against two men, as well as the alleged mastermind Rubens Villa Coelho. Coelho led a transnational criminal organization responsible for some of the illegal fishing activity Phillips and Pereira were out to expose. 
This past Monday, President Lula da Silva celebrated World Environment Day by recognizing the two men. Bruno e Dom. Mereciam e deveriam estar aqui hoje. A melhor maneira de honrá-los é garantir que sua luta não tenha sido em vão. And that fight for environmental justice is far from over. I think it's our duty to tell the stories. A consortium of investigative journalists launched the Bruno and Dom project, which will follow up on and publish stories the pair were trying to tell, as well as a separate project to fund and complete the book Phillips was working on when killed. Repression against reporters covering the Amazon beat continues, but with more culprits behind bars and the return of environmentally conscious leadership in the capital, journalism from the rainforest stands a better chance of reaching audiences around the world. Thanks, Flo. 83 years ago, in June of 1940, the first trainload of prisoners arrived at Auschwitz-Birkenau, the Nazi extermination camp, where during World War II, more than a million people were sent to their deaths in gas chambers. Auschwitz would become an enduring, horrific symbol of the Holocaust and Adolf Hitler's attempts to annihilate Europe's Jewish population. As the years pass, the number of survivors dwindles. The importance of their testimonies grows, as does the risk of history being revised or rewritten. Politicians have been known to frame the past in ways that serve their political interests in the present. Just ask the Turkish government about the Armenian genocide or the Chinese authorities about the Tiananmen Square massacre. The same can be said of the Holocaust, a story that was on a different scale. The Listening Post's Johanna Hus now from Auschwitz on the politics of memory and the importance of recounting history so it does not recur. Any individual witness to the Holocaust, I think, is obliged to act as a witness. So one can't wipe it out of history. The murder was on such a large scale, and each one has his or her own valuable story of that. You know, it's not exactly a picnic to me to talk about it, but I never refuse. My personal story has some aspects that really show how a poisonous ideology can turn people from being decent people to being murderers. At no point, at no time, did we ever know where we were going until we suddenly arrived at a place that we never heard of, Auschwitz. You can imagine the confusion. When these gates opened, there were these SS men walking around with guns on it. One of these shaven men with striped uniform came into our wagon and he turned to my mother in Yiddish and said to us, which are your children? And she said, well, these are my two girls and these are my two little boys. So he said, let the girls go ahead. Let them go ahead, you will see them later. And I remember looking back I think my mother had a spotted scarf. Looking back, and we saw our mother, and we waved, and she waved back. That was the last time we would see her alone.
It's been 80 years since Mindu Hornig lost Sul, her mother and brothers, in the Auschwitz-Birkenau extermination camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. Between 1941 and 1945, more than a million people perished in the camp's gas chambers, the vast majority of them Jews. But there are those who have survived the Holocaust, telling their truths well into their 90s. How important are first-hand accounts, testimonies of those who actually witnessed the atrocities that were committed here in Auschwitz to understanding what really happened? The word of survivors is a very important part of the authenticity of the story of Auschwitz because, of course, we have the sites, we have historical research, but if we really want to understand the human experience of this place, how those men, women and children who were deported here uh, suffered, how the system of dehumanization works. We need to listen to the words of people who went through this place. We were still crying for our mother. Um, the people that were there said, can you see that smoke up there? Because the smell, by the way, yeah, is this terrible smell and the grey ash was falling around us. And when you sort of caught it, it was greasy. We didn't know what it was. So one of the ladies said, don't be silly, you're not going to see your mother. Can you see that smoke? That's where she is. The words from the mouth of people who went through all circles of hell has a much more profound, I would say, impact than anything I or other historians can convey in our uh, words. Of course, with the passage of time, this struggle to preserve the memory of the most horrifying genocide in Europe's and arguably world history it becomes more and more important. Adolf Hitler sowed the seeds for that genocide from the moment he rose to power in the early 1930s. Germany's defeat in World War I resulted in Berlin having to pay large reparations and give up significant territory, leaving Germans angry and humiliated. They were looking for someone to blame, and Hitler offered them a scapegoat, the Jews. Over the course of the Second World War, Nazi Germany and its collaborators systematically murdered some six million Jews to make way for what Hitler considered a superior Aryan race. Eight decades later, the generation of those who did survive the Holocaust is slowly disappearing, and with it are their memories. With every Holocaust survivor that passes away, the number of testimonies of those who made it through the horrors of Nazism grow smaller and smaller. First-hand accounts are fading away, and the risk of history being revised or rewritten grows larger. Distortion or revision or denial has been with us. Of course, there is a risk that, uh, that the, the, the farther we are from historical events, the, the memory of these events is more fragile. There may be less people who can be the eyewitnesses that are um, incredibly important when we try to prove that something happened. Um, one example, Hungary. 
which was deeply complicit in the Holocaust. The trains carrying 430,000 Hungarian Jews to their deaths at Auschwitz. In the spring and summer of 1944, these Jews were collected, were put on the trains, not by the Germans. They were put on the trains by Hungarian officials, civil, military, police. So in Hungary, what happens now is a very sustained, a very energetic attempt to shift the blame entirely on the Germans. Holocaust revisionism has also come to Poland. Like so many occupied countries, under Hitler's rule, Poland was divided. Some Poles risked their lives to help save Jews, but many others helped the Nazis, some as collaborators, some as perpetrators. It's an ugly truth that was largely suppressed for the first 50 post-war years under communist rule. With the fall of communism in the 1990s, there was a brief respite, allowing historians to write history as it had happened, but it was short-lived. In 2018, the ruling Law and Justice Party, with its nationalist agenda, passed a law written to silence anyone who questions Paul's complicity in Nazi war crimes, including Jan Grabowski. They wanted to protect their own um, myth of innocence, national innocence. What the current very nationalistic authorities in Poland do is something called a distortion of the Holocaust. Distortion recognizes that, you know, there was a Jewish catastrophe. However, our people, they say, had nothing to do with it. Basically, we, they say, Polish society, en masse, tried to rescue the Jews. And this, unfortunately, is a deep, profound fallacy. There were some people, even amongst the Polish people, who were anti-Semitic. And they were pleased that the Jews were being murdered. So we had to escape from every, every point, everywhere around us. There was danger that we were going to be handed over to the Gestapo and, and exterminated. Auschwitz today is as much about commemorating the victims of the past as it is a warning sign for future generations. The genocides are a product of us, humans, the end result of the hateful ideologies that we, as people, create, believe and execute. Meaning history can always repeat itself. In the words of Auschwitz survivor Primo Levi, it happened. Therefore, it can happen again. Look what happened since in Srebrenica, Darfur, Bosnia. They're killing their own people because they just have a different belief. That's terrible. But with us, they built factories of death. Never before in history have there ever been built factories of death. Be very careful about what you believe in and what you trust. I would like to instill this in, in the young generation. Judge very carefully what ideology you subscribe to. There must be at the, at the basis of any ideology something that benefits humanity, not something that destroys it.
And finally, back to artificial intelligence. AI illiteracy is a real challenge for some journalists, even some of the people working on AI software. There is specialist knowledge out there. You just have to know where to look. Podcasts can provide entry points for people new to the subject. Tech Won't Save Us is one of them. The show is not specifically about AI, but it keeps coming up on a podcast whose guiding principle is that technological efficiency should not come at such a high human cost. We're asking the technology to predict like the impact that it's going to have as if the technology has any kind of brain behind it. Another podcast we'd recommend, Last Week in AI. The name tells you all you need to know. People like you and I would like have conversations in lunchrooms and nobody would understand what the hell we're talking about. And now it's just kind of like everybody seems focused on this space. For AI updates that go straight to your inbox, there are two newsletters worth checking out. First, Chin AI, published by Jeffrey Ding of George Washington University. It features translations of key Chinese discussions about AI development. Another newsletter is AI Supremacy. It has a paid option and a free one. It's a good fit for those of you who already have some knowledge about artificial intelligence. Finally, two websites for those who are into AI and want to dig a little deeper. Distributed AI Research Institute and the AI Incident Database. And we will continue to generate stories on AI as well using all of the tools at our disposal, including journalism. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.